You're listening to the Miscarriage Doula Podcast. I'm your host, Arden Cartret. This space is meant to be a tool for you to feel less alone and to learn more about how to get through what you've been through and what you're probably going through. We'll hear diverse stories from women and men in the online space, experts, and people just like you and me who are feeling the effects of miscarriage and loss in real time. This is the Miscarriage Doula Podcast. You're listening to episode number 23 of the Miscarriage Doula Podcast. Today, I am talking with a lost mom. Her name is Stephanie. And originally, she you know, put in her information to have a conversation with me for the Monday Life After Miscarriage series, but our conversation covered so much that I've decided to make this a Thursday episode um, because we do go through her recurrent pregnancy loss, and then we talk about pregnancy after loss, then we talk about motherhood and grief during motherhood, and it's just a full spectrum miscarriage journey episode, and I think it's such an important conversation. We talk um, a lot about the different stages, and so normally I try to focus on one stage, that way you know people can find episodes that relate to what they're going through, but here is a great episode if you are holding your rainbow baby and still struggling with grief, um, if you are wondering what pregnancy after loss looks like, what motherhood after loss looks like, if you're even struggling to picture what that looks like, but you're curious, you know, this is a great episode. Um, it's also a great episode about advocating for yourself, and I just left this conversation feeling really empowered. I will warn you that I recorded this in my car, so <laughs> I was in a Chick-fil-A parking lot, very professional, and I um, tried my best with the sound. I think it's okay for the most part. There is a part towards the end where a dump truck drives by, and they drove by very loudly, and I can't edit that out, so I just wanted to give you a heads up that you are not being run over by a dump truck at the end of this episode. That is unfortunately my uh, fault for recording in my car. So thank you guys for tuning in and for allowing me to hold the space to have these conversations. I would so appreciate it if you left a review on Apple Podcasts. This helps other people find the show. It also helps tell other people what to expect from the show and how the show can help them. If you're interested in learning more about the Miscarriage Doula in general or my one-on-one services, um, check out my ebooks, things like that, you can go to themiscarriagedoula.co. Okay, let's get into the episode. All right, Stephanie, thank you so much for joining me today. I would love for you to just start your story whenever you're ready. Um, okay, so my name is uh, Stephanie Allen. I'm a uh, 37 years old because I live in New York City with my two kids. Um, my story, gosh, kind of begins back in, well, definitely begins back in 2016. Um, my husband and I got married in June of 2016. Um, and I, we knew we wanted to have a family. Um, but we quickly found out we were pregnant a month later, which was a total surprise. Um, And I had this very uneventful kind of pregnancy um, until about 16 weeks. Um, We were on our honeymoon in Italy, actually. And I started to have 
just kind of funny symptoms um, and some spotting, like discharge and spotting. And we went to an Italian hospital, which was an interesting experience. Um, and uh, they all said, oh, you just have bacterial vaginosis. That's what it looks like. Um, no, no big deal. Um, but you should probably go back to the States and, you know, get followed up by your, with your OB in person. And, um, so we, we quickly got on an airplane a few days later, um, cause it, the spotting kind of, uh, increased a bit at this point. And at this point we still didn't think anything was wrong. Um, and so that was around 17 and a half weeks when we got back to the States. Um, and everything looked normal on my exam back home. I was, I was in Washington, DC at the time. And my OB was like, I think this is just an infection, you know, do the flagell and keep, you know, we'll just keep an eye on it. But things still uh, continue to progressively get worse. And so I'd have like big bleeds um, off and on, you know, not every day um, at first. And then it became every day. And I went to the labor and delivery a million times that my cervix looked closed, everything looked normal um, until my anatomy scan at 19 weeks. And that's when they found out that my cervix had uh, completely funneled to like, I don't know, 1.7 centimeters was left. Um, and so we were quickly admitted that day to put in, um, I'm sure you have some, you know, but this, the, the rescue surclages that they put in. Um, and that went, that went pretty well. I mean, the bleeding continued though, once I got home and my, my understanding was that it was supposed to stop and things would get better and there was still no guarantee, but was, but the race was on to get to 24 weeks. Um, and if things just continued to get worse from there, unfortunately, and I, around 20, I think it was right at 21 weeks, I was watching the crown in my living room and I stood up and my water broke. Um, so from there, it was everything that no one talks about that you, you know, have an actual labor and delivery when you have a baby at 21 weeks. Um, so I labored in my room. I refused an epidural. I tried to keep everything on my original birth plan, which I laugh at a birth plan now, just from that. Um, and he was born, I guess, like six hours later. Um, but yeah, I mean, it was one of the hardest days of my life. I, I, I know there are people that go through it all the time. You just, you don't think it's going to happen to you and it does. Ironic. Um, so Tom, we named him Thompson Alexander and, uh, we got to hold him and be with him for about 24 hours. So our families got to come and see him and we have his footprints and I put the, made a tattoo on my arm shortly after he was born. Um, but you know, everybody treated him with a ton of respect. The staff treated him as if he was a normal baby. He got all of the same things that they did. And we gave him a funeral and we buried him um, outside Washington DC in Maryland. Um, and after that happened, I went on this quest to figure out how I could fix, um, what had, what had happened, you know, and every doctor told me, you know, you just need a, you need a transvaginal cerclage next time and progesterone. And, um, at this point in time, I had taken a new job back in New York and I was back with my original OB 
um, at Cornell and I, I just love her. And I had, I had heard about uh, something called a trans-abdominal surclage from a labor and delivery nurse that, I, that I'm friends with. Um, Cause she kept telling me, I see so many failed transvaginal surclages. Like if you really want to have a normal pregnancy and you're not married to the idea of a vaginal birth, this thing goes in, you know, three months postpartum and it stays in until you're done having children. Um, and of course I got pushback from my OB at Cornell. She was like, I think that's a little bit of a morbid procedure. You, you only had one loss. And I said, I hate when people say only had one loss and that the clinical criteria for this is two or more losses after uh, 16 weeks. And I just think it just wasn't good enough for me, but she left it up to me. She knows she said, it's, but it's your body, the ball's in your court. So I ended up going with a um, surgeon at GW who my original MFM um, recommended. And uh, he said, look, if he thinks you're a candidate, then you're a candidate. And if you're not, then you're not. And so I went, and he agreed that I definitely had cervical insufficiency. Um, he was able to do the procedure laparoscopically. Um, traditionally, they were placed almost like a C-section. It's a laparotomy. They open you up. And I don't know that I would have done it if it, was, if it, if it still could only be done in that, that's that way. Um, but uh, yeah, so on March 3rd, 2017, I got this abdominal cerclage placed. Um, and it was, it was a really great day because it was so relieved that I could finally move forward. Um, and I still wasn't completely healed and I, you know, emotionally, and I don't think you ever, ever do completely heal. Um, but then I was so scared to try again because I thought, well, if I get pregnant, then here we go again. Um, but I did get pregnant again a couple months later um, in May. And that was my daughter, Violet, who's three now. Um, I gave birth to her at 38 weeks, six days. I had a totally uneventful pregnancy, except for developing obstetric cholestasis at the end of the pregnancy, um, which is that itchy condition where you're super, super itchy. And uh, they tell you to tell your doctor. And I had weeks of bile acid tests run, you know, from 32 weeks on and didn't get a positive until, until 38 weeks. And with cholestasis, you really have to deliver between 36 and 37 weeks um, because the risk of stillbirth goes up 30%. Um, and they don't even, they don't really understand why. We just know there's something with the bile acids. So Violet was an emergency section, um, but she, she, was, she was great. She was fine. And um, I had a really hard time, I think, connecting with her initially because you think so much about that other baby. Um, even though you're so thankful that they're here, um, uh, there's a part of you that's like, well, this isn't Thompson or this, he should be here too. Or, and then starts the other conversations of, well, you wouldn't have Violet if you had, if you had Thompson and you, I'm sure you can relate. relate. I literally <laughs> think about this all the time and it is the <laughs> biggest, it is just the biggest mind game because people, you know, think that you're crazy by saying, no, I'm no. so sad and I still miss those babies, but I'm, I also love, you know, my earth side child so much and it it, you don't understand it until you experience it. It's just the weirdest feeling. I so know, I, I, I hear you. You are not alone in that. Yeah. Yes. And we had a, we had a great um, um, postpartum period with Violet. She was, 
she's an amazing kid. She's insane. And I think she does have pieces of her brother with her. I always call them like my Irish twins because she was right after him. And I'm like, he's, she's very much a tomboy. And it's, it's, it's great. To, it's been great to see. And, and so awesome. Um, but for me, my story did not end there because I, I, I attempted to get pregnant again about a year later. My doctor wanted me to wait a year. Um, and I don't know what it was. I always felt like the clock was against me. And I know every woman can feel that way when they're in their reproductive years. And I, my husband's like, well, let's just wait a little bit longer. And I'm like, I'm like, we just don't know how long it's gonna take. you know. And I said, just because we got pregnant quickly, after that 21 week loss, I'm like, I, I spent six months almost pregnant with nothing at the end and having to start all over. And that, that really shifted my way of thinking, I think with, with trying to get pregnant and when is there a right time? And there is no right time. Um, but I'm glad we decided to try because my first pregnancy after my daughter was a six week miscarriage. Um, my second pregnancy after my, after that, uh, was a 11 week mismissed carriage that I had to have a DNC. Um, and at this point we were living in Germany and, uh, I can't tell you what it's like to go through any surgical procedure in another language. I do speak German, but not, not medical German. Um, and that was a interesting experience for me because I felt just as gutted as I did, um, with my, my stillbirth. I'm, and everybody always says like, well, at least you weren't this far along or this was early or it always sucks. <laughs> um, and it's always the most excruciating pain you can go through. I don't care who you are. Um, we were able to do the genetic testing on that because of the DNC though. And so there was an extra, there was like a trisomy 16, I think. And they said that that was, you know, the most common uh, relocation for you know, the chromosomal abnormalities that happened with a miscarriage. Um, and then I attempted to get pregnant again a couple months later in July, and it was a blighted ovum again at eight weeks. So at this point, I said, something's going on. Um, probably my egg quality, I, I don't know. I was 36. Um, so I, I finally got in to see an RE in New York in November of uh, 2019. And she did everything under the sun. You know, you take all those tubes of blood, like 30 tubes, and she, she did everything. They did recurrent miscarriage panels. She did my FSH, everything. What we found was my AMH levels, which had been checked about two years before and were a really good level. My AMH had dropped to like 0.4 or something. Um, and so she suspected that that was the culprit. You know, she said people with low AMH, a lot of the time, you know, they can't get pregnant easily. But a lot of the time in your case, you can get pregnant. It's just very, a very reduced rate of live birth when you have a low AMH because of quality obviously tends to be lower at that point. So I said, okay, she's like, what do you want to do? And I was like, I want to jump into IVF because I can keep banging my head against the wall or we can, we can do this. But with the low AMH, obviously, you could be a poor responder to variant stimulation. And um, so we kind of knew we had an uphill battle. And we were preparing for that. Um, she did an HSG. She did all of the other things to look for any scarring, since I did have the DNC in the uterus. Um, and everything looked great. And she said, I want you to just, you know, keep trying, though, you know, because I think until we get to January 13th, you know, anything can happen. 
So we buy all the drugs and we get ready to go. And I go to my clinic for a baseline and they do a pregnancy test in January. And I got pregnant with my now second rainbow baby in December. Um, but it was not an easy pregnancy. I think it was a lot in a lot of ways you have those earth, those first trimester losses and it, and it like the pregnancy test, that idea of a positive pregnancy test is just, you don't even, it doesn't even mean anything to you anymore. At least for me, I was like, well, this doesn't mean anything. anything. Yeah. I definitely relate to that. Yeah. Yeah. It does. And, uh, my level, they were like 37 at that first, um, the first beta. So she said, well, it's either not going to be good or it, the baby must have implanted really late. And I said, all right. And of course I had some spotting as well, which um, luckily did not last, like, last very long. But even though they were low levels, uh, it was low, but mighty because she, the baby hung in there, <laughs> like everything doubled like it was supposed to. Um, but I never looked at like early ultrasounds so obsessively trying to figure out, you know, is this the right size sack? Is the sack bigger than the baby? Is it, it, and it's just at that early, all that stuff, it's like, it's, it's, I don't know. It, it was a really, really, really hard time. And of course, COVID-19 happens at the beginning of my pregnancy. And uh, so for me, being high risk, I was like, well, I'm on a modified bed rest half the time anyway. So this is going to really, really suck the wind out of my sails in terms of limiting my life. But, uh, you know, I was alone. My husband was in Germany with my daughter the whole time um, because I I didn't want to do IVF in Germany. They they have very stringent rules about testing embryos there for, for obvious reasons. Um, there's a lot of stuff that's in place there now to protect life um, in any, in any, in, at any stage. Um, and so they were like, yes, you had miscarriages, but you, you're not, you're not, you don't qualify for embryo testing because, um, just because of losses. Um, and I knew I had one of the best, you know, IVF clinics in the country, five blocks from our apartment in New York. So I was like, I'll just go and we'll, we'll see what she says. And so I get pregnant and then nobody can be together because of COVID. Um, so I went through this long nine months alone. I got, they get, they did come visit twice. Um, but I have to tell you, I think it was a good thing in the end because it gave me a chance to really bond with this child. Because when you have that first rainbow baby after so much struggle or loss, they walk on water, as you know. <laughs> and when you have a second one, you're like, how, how, how is this going to go? Um, and I had a hard time connecting to this baby for a really long time, especially the first trimester. There was something about the 12 week mark that I thought, oh, this is where it's going to go downhill. Because I've known a few friends and, and I'm glad we have each other's stories because I, I think, and, you're, and that you're doing this because I think the thing about miscarriage is the first time it happens to you, you feel like you got caught with your pants down, <laughs> you know, like right. I didn't think this was going to, what, you know, and no matter how it happens, it's awful. Um, and so I had a really hard time connecting that. And I remember that 12 week nuchal scan, the woman told me, she's like, you're going to give yourself high blood pressure. If you, I was shaking on the table and, and I'm not that type of person. I've worked in medicine for like my entire life and I know better and I know to just wait. And it's not, I don't have anything to say about this. I'm not an obstetrician. You know, you just, your mind goes so dark. 
at those ultrasounds just from having one bad one, you know? Right. And yeah. I was shaking and my girlfriend was with me at the time because they hadn't uh, denied uh, guests yet. This was like early, I guess this must have been March, early March, right before everything shut down in New York, before things got really bad here. Um, and yeah, my friend was like, you have to calm down. Like, it, she's like, you, the woman was like, you know what high blood pressure does? I'm a dietitian. So she's like, you know what high blood pressure does with the placenta and the baby and everything. She's like, you need to calm down. She's like, this is going to be okay. She's like, you know, and I was like, I, I know that like mentally that it can be and that it probably will be, but emotionally and it hasn't caught up yet. Um, but it was, it was really just, an, it was a smooth pregnancy. It was easier than my first in a lot of ways. I did get cholestasis again, which was just, I don't wish that on anybody. I, I can't imagine a worse kind of pregnancy complication to have. Um, and it came on earlier this time at like 24 weeks. So I, I itched all day and all night for four months. It was, oh. yeah. And then the, and then the C-section went down in the same kind of way where my levels finally hit like a high enough point where they were like, eh, okay, time to take her out. And so it was just like one morning I'm at Bed Bath & Beyond and then that afternoon I have a baby. <laughs> so it's just, and I, I think that's the hard part with the C-section is that like you don't labor and there's no process to the birth. And I did get that with my son and I'm glad that I did that. But uh, C-sections, you know, save lives, you know, for me. And I will always be a, uh, if someone has to have one, I'm always there to cheer them on and, you know, remind them why we have them. Um, right. But it's that, it's that like drive through window kind of feeling where you're like pregnant and then you're not. <laughs> so it's like, Okay. Um, yeah, I totally think about that. And whenever I prepared for my rainbow birth, I thought like I feared a C-section for that reason. I thought it would be harder to handle the postpartum stage. Did you find that that played a part? Um, my first time I had pretty severe postpartum initially. And I, and I don't know if that was compounded by the stillbirth I'd had before. Um, my first C-section recovery was pretty rough. I have to say, I, it's, it's surgery. Um, I've never been through it. And I was not sad that I had the C-section though. And I never will be because if I didn't have the cerclage, I wouldn't have my kids. And so when I do get upset about the fact that I have to have this surgery every time I have a baby, I always backtrack logically in those steps, which is what my therapist has told me to do <laughs> over the years, you know? it's a sequential thing, you know, you have the cerclage because you could, your body can't hold your babies in, you know, and there, and I, and then I think the second time it was, my second C-section was a breeze. I mean, absolutely a breeze. I knew what to do. I knew to move around. I, I it was a better experience. My first C-section was very traumatic. I threw up for hours after I didn't get to hold my baby um, I, I was reading, I was watching, uh, looking at Millie's stories on her Instagram and I, about her C-section delivery. And I went, oh my gosh, yes. But, you know, I, uh, I said, that's how I felt. I couldn't, I couldn't do any of those things. And for me, what they found out was I had hypovolemia. I just, I just needed one more bag of fluids during surgery and it would have balanced me out a little bit better. And so my second C-section, it's emergency one. And I'm like, give me the anesthesia, anesthesiologist. I want to talk to him. And I explained to him quickly what happened. I was like, listen, we're going to have a come to Jesus here. We're, I was like, this is what happened last time. Let's avoid it. He goes, I think you just, this was your problem. I'm going to hang two bags of water and I'm going to make sure they give it to you until tomorrow morning. 
And so if I could say my PSA now for anyone undergoing a cesarean, make sure they hang enough fluids for you. Um, because that is, I mean, it seems like something so simple, but a lot of people don't do it and they don't hang enough. They don't hang it for long enough because I, I had a incredible delivery experience with my second baby. Um, and no depression the second time. It, it was interesting. I'm interested to see what happens for you in the future, God willing, because your first delivery with the C, with a C-section or even a traumatic vaginal birth, I mean, the postpartum is real. And I think a lot of that is compounded by grief when it, when totally. you from our- My grief completely played a part in my postpartum depression. Cause I, um, I have such an unpopular opinion, but I loved labor and delivery. I, yeah. I vaginal birth. I had an epidural. It was, you know, it was hard, but it was everything that I kind of prepared for, for years. And then it was also very, um, I don't know. It was a very peaceful experience, but I know that I'm very lucky to have that. But then my postpartum, like I can't even imagine not having postpartum depression because that's just how my mind was for the entire first year. And it's just, I mean, it's a weird thing. The first two weeks, I think we all get baby blues. You know, you, I cry when I leave the hospital. Like I love, I, I had C-sections, but there is nothing more magical and a bigger high than when you have that baby. Totally. I mean, you're in the hospital and your doctor's there. I cry when I leave my doctor because I I'm so high risk with the cholestasis stuff that I see her every week. I get NSTs twice a week at, at from 32 weeks on. I have BPPs every week. I have all this monitoring. And really what that does is creates a family. Mm-hmm. With COVID, I had no family here. So my clinical team, I saw them every, they were the people I saw every day. And I think I didn't really have a bad bout of it this time. But when I left the hospital, I sobbed because I was like, I don't get to see them anymore. And they kept, they kept me glued together. You know, I, uh, I feel like when I'm pregnant, my body's like CD scotch tape and glue, like keep it going. And it's, it's just a funny thing to feel like you don't trust your body when I've run like 10 marathons and I've always been so physical and I thought, and I've always been a hard worker and you think like, I, I do all this stuff and I do all the work, so it's got to work out. And then it doesn't. And it's so hard to wrap that, wrap your mind around that. But the one thing I do know is that persistence is a trait that we all have and that I do believe can get you to the finish line and it doesn't matter how you get there you know whether it's your own natural baby whether it's adoption whether it's if you want to be a parent you will find a way to be a parent Um, that's important yeah people think that to get their rainbow baby it, it all looks the same way and it can look different Oh yeah, no, they don't fix everything either. You know, you I don't. And that's a really, I honestly thought that they did. And I think that that really contributed to my postpartum depression as well, because I had, I just thought that having a baby in my arms would solve everything. Like I thought that all of my grief would kind of go away, but it really brought up grief in different ways. It does. And everything he does, your son does, and my kids do. I, I would say the one thing I didn't do is take a break in four years. And I should have. Um, because I mean, things played out the way they did and we only, we've only wanted two children. And so we're, we're finished now. And uh, that's why I'm really glad I could spend more time focusing on others and helping others. Um, but I, I don't know, I gotta tell you, it's, I have, I struggle with watching my three-year-old do things. And I think more about my son every day. 
because it's like he would be doing this he would be this old so you those magical things they do you just think about well who are those other babies Mm -hmm. and it's just I mean if you don't take a break to center yourself and you just keep going I feel like when I had my second I felt like maybe I don't know how it felt to be in World War II and hit the beach in Normandy and keep going but I had an idea because you get home from war or when it's over when it's finally over when you struggled and it's over. What now? Like you're alone with your thoughts. (laughs) Um, That's almost worse. (laughs) Yeah. It's so grateful, but you still carry those wounds and they're still there. Um, and, uh, it's, it's hard, you know, I, I'm sure you can relate. Like I have a lot of friends who are pregnant who want to ask me all these questions about what happened to me. And I know it's because they're worried about it happening to them or the other side of it is, well, I don't want to hear about any loss. And I'm like, well, then we shouldn't have a conversation for the next nine months, <laughs> you know, because experience. experience and it's my experience and it's my story. And so I've found ways to politely disengage from people, you know, when they're pregnant. And I'm like, this can't be a one-way street where everything's going well for you and you want all my help and assistance. But then if I talk about anything, it's triggering for you. Like it, you know, and I, you just have to draw boundaries with people, but the fact that those things even come out of people's mouths, I'm just, it's, mm-hmm. it's we struggle with, uh, in our society, I think with negative things and, uh, we need to focus more on how we, how we become resilient, not avoid negativity or avoid bad outcomes. We need to talk more about how we survive them. Right. Right. So. Well, and I always tell people whenever I meet with them and they tell me that, you know, they're pregnant after loss and maybe they have a friend who's experiencing loss and it's really triggering. The thing that I always say to center them is like, remember that that's not your story and you being aware of that bad thing, being able to happen to somebody else won't make it happen to you. It just means that if it does happen to you, that you'll have some knowledge, some experience to know to advocate for yourself and kind of looking at it that way. Yeah, no, I I just, I said that to a friend the other day. It's so funny because I said, that's my story. Mm-hmm. my grandmother had a loss at six months as well and I suspect it was probably from the same thing that I had but they didn't know back then you know um and then two miscarriages and we have a similar history and I was I had said something about that and it just triggered my friend and set her off and I was like that's our story this isn't your story you know and it's just there's there's got to be though this level of respect with people that like this isn't your story but it you know it is mine <laughs> So, and it didn't kill birth. Like it's birth in some capacity. I I know that I make the mistake sometimes. Well, I say the mistake because it's uncomfortable for other people, but miscarriage is so first nature for me to talk about, but like people will talk about, um, postpartum from their vaginal delivery. And this was especially before Cameron was born. I would bring up my quote unquote postpartum from my miscarriages because I technically gave vaginal birth at home and I had, you know, bleeding and a whole recovery. And so I would compare it to that and I could see their faces like it's not the same. And I'm now that I've had a live birth and I've seen that recovery, it's very similar aside from like the swollen vagina. (laughs) Because there's here, my doctor always reminds me it's the same hormones. Mm -hmm. They all have to readjust back to the same amount like you still have that shift and that's what causes all of this stuff Mm -hmm. whether it's six weeks or 36 or 42 it's the same react your body has got to go back to baseline and unfortunately the way that happens causes that entire cascade of emotions and it's 
I'm so glad you're doing this. I mean, really, I, I have to say, I've been like a lurker in the infertility community because I wasn't somebody who had an account. I didn't even know that these things existed. My, you know, I, incidentally, my sister went through IVF and my brother-in-law, my brother's sister. So my sister-in-law, sorry. Like everyone in my family has IVF babies except for me, but I had all the loss. Interesting. And so we're, uh, my, I know my mom's like, we are reproductively challenged and proud of it. Like, this is our, this is our story, you know? Um, but, you know, nobody talks about this stuff and I didn't know. And I didn't think I qualified as infertile because I had a stillbirth. I didn't know. I pray that I hear that from so many people who've had multiple losses, who get pregnant easily, but have a hard time staying pregnant or, you know, need assistance staying pregnant. Every single woman tells me that she doesn't feel like she fits in the infertility community, even though technically that's infertility, you know, and and that's really sad that there's kind of a gap there. And so I don't know how I could change that myself, but like, I wish that I could just tell every woman who's had losses, especially, you know, a stillbirth. I think that that is a different level of loss. You said, you know, how loss at any gestation is sad and heartbreaking, but it is. That's a different level though. The the late ones, I don't know. It's, it's very different. It's literally like, I remember my pregnancy with my rainbow baby. You would think that 12 weeks you'd be like, okay, we're in the clear. But for me, I thought, well, now if my baby dies, I have to give vaginal birth and I have to see them. And that was a really morbid thing that nobody wanted to hear me say, but And having to see them is a thing. I'm glad you said that because you, I couldn't look at my son for four hours. I felt so guilty that I did this to him, you know, and I know that that's not the reality of it, but you're afraid to look at them. Yeah. Everybody laid eyes on them. And I have to tell you, like, after I found all these infertility Instagram pages and other people's stillbirth photos, I... I have pictures of him and I wasn't able to look at them for so many years. And now because I've, I've seen so many other people share their stories, it's helped me process that that's what a baby looks like at 22 weeks. That's what a baby looks like at 24 or later. And I was able to go back and look at him, look at his photos, you know, because I, it's just the most heartbreaking thing in the world. I just, I I don't know, you know, I still get upset thinking about it. So yeah. Well, I can imagine um, in my bereavement, by my bereavement training, you know, I'm taught to help tell women that it's okay to be afraid to see their baby, that that, even though, you know, it seems really morbid and horrible to look at your baby dead, um, that is still your baby and this is your time with them. And so even if it took you four hours to look, you know, you have those photos and yeah, it's, it's I'm so glad I held him because, you know, my grandmother is 85 and, you know, nearing the end of her life. And all she wants to do is see pictures of my baby because she, hers was taken away. Oh my God. Damn. And it's so funny that she's 85 and now just talking about it. Yeah. It's just like, she's carried that around for her whole life. It's, Can you imagine not talking about it and like just oh. carrying that grief around? Ugh, that's got to be so heavy. Miscarriages they went through. I mean, think my grandmother had six kids on my dad's side. Like she must have had, my dad's like, he's like, I know she had at least four. Yeah, and I'm oh. like, but they just kept going. And I think there's something profound in that um, to yeah. not giving up, you know, and 
I'm somebody that always believes that there's always a way there's gotta be a way <laughs> and it might not look the way you want it to, but it's, you know, like I said, I, these women, they just kept going and it, it, there's, there's something remarkable in that. Um, and I, they just didn't talk about it though. And I think that's the hard part. It's and definitely generational. My mom had a miscarriage at 12 weeks and she never talked. Well, she, I knew that I had a sibling in heaven, um, but I never knew the details of her miscarriage. And it wasn't until my second miscarriage that she really like dove back into those memories. And she told me she'd never talked about giving birth at home and having to be rushed to the hospital and like the blood and how nobody talked about it after it happened. And she just went on with life. I know it, they just didn't, they didn't say a thing. And I don't know. I don't know. And me talking about it, you know, my grandmother and my aunts and everybody, they're like, we didn't realize it was this big of a thing was for Stephanie. And my mom's like, no, there's pictures of him. He was a baby. It's, it just doesn't occur to them. You know, um, it's, it's, it's hard, but I don't think we need to suffer in silence and you don't need to suffer for no reason. I mean, you didn't, you didn't do that. Like you're doing this incredible thing and you have this great platform and people who are lurkers on Instagram who don't share their whole story like me. Um, it gives them a voice too, because we're, we're, we're out here. You know, I, uh, I got more involved in the infertility community once I was going through my early losses because I was looking for advice and ideas and is my RE doing everything they need to do and you know I I wanted to make sure I was checking those boxes um and but even as a secondary infertile person you're like is this the same thing as these people because I I can't imagine sometimes struggling for years and and they still haven't taken a baby home and I and I felt like this is not do I fit where do I fit into this space between people who are trying to get their family started and I'm trying to complete mine. Um, That's that's an interesting way to put it. Well, and I can tell you that even from my, like with my story, I got pregnant with fertility medication and timed intercourse. Like my husband, they, they told him he had super sperm, which was the most annoying thing to hear. (laughs) And um, so basically (laughs) you can't get pregnant for some reason, but your husband has great sperm. So you're definitely the problem. Um, So we did use fertility drugs, which worked very easily for us. So I also feel like a level of that because I see people going through IVF to get their babies after years. And I yeah. That's the pill that people don't have success with. Um, right. So I think that everybody, that's why I always tell people not to compare that, you know, I your know. story is your story. And that's, you can, somebody always will have it worse than you. Always, always. And, and that also weighs on you as well. It's, it's, um, yeah, it's just difficult. I don't know this is a hard, it's a hard place to be in, especially when you're in it. Um, I have to tell you though, on the other side and being finished with having kids, you still go, Oh, maybe I could have another one. But my husband's like, are you serious? I mean, I would, I would have another one. I think if I didn't have the cholestasis, that is a game changer. I mean, the itching for days and weeks and like, it's just impossible. It's so hard. Um, but I don't know though, mentally, I, I, uh, it feels very freeing in a lot of ways to be finished. finished. You can actually, you can actually focus on focus others. on other. I, I, it's, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think I'm. I think I'm a little crazy to where like pregnancy after loss was 
truly the most terrifying thing but here I am wanting to be pregnant again and have like all the babies even though it's it's terrifying thinking about (laughs) having more loss or yeah but you do it you know you know you can't get any other way exactly um I had to remind, remind myself that all the time after every time I had those early losses and just was like, I, my husband, you know, let's not even talk. That's a whole other episode. Like what it does to them. Um, my husband for him, like sex equal death, you know, for a long time and yeah. he didn't want to do it. And it was like, why are we back? You know, he really was like, this is, I don't think I can take another loss that, you know, when our second daughter came along, Rosalind. So I, um, I think for us both, we're, we're finished at this point, um, for our marriage sake, but it's, it's just so hard on, it's hard on both of you. It's hard on the families. It's, it's, and then, then, then you have to focus on raising your living children and trying to remember the one that's not. And that's a whole other, mm-hmm. I'm sure you could have a whole show on that about how to yes. incorporate the idea now that I have a three-year-old her brother I have a stuffed giraffe that was at his funeral and I always call it his familiar because I swear he's always around whenever that giraffe is around and, uh, so the giraffe though my sister my, my my sister gave it to me and my but my daughter knows the giraffe like his his name was like 35 or something she named it 35 like it's her favorite number and so the, this giraffe though I swear to god like she um, that's what we've started to use as her like well this is you have a brother and he's on here. And so we, but we started to use the giraffe as like a teaching tool and, uh, it works for her, you know? <laughs> so, um, it's hard. I mean, all of this stuff is so hard and I know where you're at too mentally when you're gearing up to do it again, <laughs> it's like checking all the boxes and going to your, oh, I'm like refusing to, um, try naturally right now because I'm so terrified because I mean, oh. even not trying naturally, that equaled miscarriage so I just I'm waiting uh my current thing is I'm waiting to talk to my OBGYN my therapist and my REL this month (laughs) I think that's I mean but you need to have a team yeah no I I I my RE I did not spend a lot of time with her you know I said when I got to that graduation appointment at seven weeks I said thank you for everything and she's like I didn't do anything you know she's like I gave you progesterone and uh I said, you gave me hope (laughs) and that's all I needed at the time. And, um, and then I said, what do you want me to do with my IVF drugs? I bought all the entire cycle and it was sitting in our refrigerator. We didn't have coverage. So it was just like, she's like, why don't you hang? She was, she's like, I'm Jewish. She's like, I'm superstitious. I want you to hang on to them. (laughs) She's like, if you're still pregnant at 34 weeks, bring them in. And so that's what I did. We just it's gave really them funny. All. Jewish people really are superstitious. I grew up in a Jewish family, and I think that's part of the reason why they didn't talk about miscarriage either because they yeah. thought they like muttered the word miscarriage, it would happen to them. And yeah. that there, there is something there with the superstition. My my family's still like that. Italians are the same way, Mike. They don't, my my family will does not put a, a nursery together until until uh-uh. after. Like they, they come over and they assemble it like Greek, like Roman gods, and they put the whole thing together in two hours. and it's just my mom was very, very superstitious about having any baby things in the house. Mm-hmm. And Isn't I, that so crazy? But I bought myself little faith purchases along the way. Every four weeks, we get past another milestone um, because I, that's what I would say to anyone who's experiencing a pregnancy after loss at this point: is take it down one 
you know, I, I imagine like gates to go through, like in a, like a ski, <laughs> like just click them off one at a time. And when you do go, go buy yourself something to celebrate that today was a good day. Yeah, no, that's what I actually have on my website. It's a goal worksheet that works exactly like that to where it's like you put your next milestone and you just focus on getting there and then you celebrate it Um, because that's what got me through. I wish you had been around when I was pregnant because this is, it's good that you're going to be here for the future because it's, um, yeah, you got to do that stuff because pregnancy, as you know, is long. It's very long. (laughs) Very long and scary. And um. And I always, people are always like, oh, take it one day at a time. I'm like, ah, I can't do that. That's too long. Like, you know, like that's too, it, too incremental. So I would do a week and then eventually it was like a month and those big checkpoints, you know? Yeah. You have to celebrate them because you have to find joy in, in the fear. I mean, it's always there, you know, it's, it's, you just got to let it seep in little by little and you'll get there, you know? Um, gosh. Yeah. Um, I don't know what else you, is there anything else you need me to talk about or? No, you told me that your story covered so many different things and it really does. And I'm so appreciative that you talked about (laughs) pregnancy and motherhood because, you know, the series that um, your episode is a part of is life after miscarriage. And that is what life after miscarriage is. It's, it's the rest of your journey. It's the rest of your parenthood journey about the kids that you don't have. And so I, I like to emphasize that your miscarriage does not stop whenever the bleeding stops from your recovery. Your journey turns into a miscarriage journey. Like for the rest of your life, those miscarriages are kind of a part of you. Yeah. It's a journey of, of, of thriving and surviving. I say, you know, because it will make you a nervous parent sometimes. And you know, my one word I'll say is that my, I was a control freak type A having, you know, the perfect water birth with my son. And this was all the things I had planned for myself, which was very much reflective of my sense of control I needed my whole life. Um, And then everything went through a spin cycle. And I got to tell you, it's made me a much better parent in the end because I, I don't sweat the small stuff anymore. There are bigger things that matter. It will make you a little bit crazy in terms of when your kids get sick and you're in an emergency room when they're infants, but um, because you don't, you know, there's triggers are still there from trauma. But in general, like the big things, you know, all the little day to day stuff is the stuff that I'm like, I have no control over this. She is her own person. And I will worry about the bigger things. So it will make you a better parent. You'll be much more level-headed in a lot of ways because I watch my friends going through things who always got everything they wanted by doing it all the ways that they wanted. And now they hit these roadblocks where their kids are not perfect and they can't, they're having a hard time. And it's, and I just have to remind them, like, this isn't what matters. Right. No, I, I totally can relate to that. I um, am very type A. I get anxiety really bad if something is out of like order out of control. I have OCD. So that also plays a part, but in parenthood, it kind of, it is totally backwards to where I'm very chill and like go with the flow and just accepting of how things are. And so I don't think I would have been that way if I hadn't experienced what I experienced. I'm telling yeah, there's, I, there's everything happens for a reason. I hate that saying, um, I love it, but I hate it. But then I sometimes say it because that's how I feel. There's, 
but there's but things are happening now and there's a reason for it that's you know, that's what i'm like there's I'm, my husband looks at me he's like are we the same person because i i just like oh i like free-range parenting and my husband's like are you are you kidding me he's that's the one that's type a now it's so funny but um exactly our experience my husband is what i thought of being the parent and he stresses me out because he is so type a but i'm like that literally is what i was like before cameron was here i know it's a mirror it's a, and i'm like yeah. i hear from so many people and and everybody expects you know them to be the type a person or the anxious person or they're worried about everything when i call my husband the helicopter dad because like cameron can't go one foot in front of him without supervision oh yeah we were living in germany which is a awesome place for kids i mean the parents there just they are all about self-reliance and independence and it's all free play until first grade like they don't have a single lesson until first grade because they think it suppresses the creative mind and problem solving skills and and there's a lot it must work because by fourth grade those kids like skip a grade in school here so it must work. Um, and I know we're trying to do that here in the U.S. more and more with kids. But they would make fun of my husband because he was like standing under the jungle gym. And Violet would be on this tall thing, like 20 feet up with these little two-year-olds. And she had no fear. And they're like, you know, he's teaching her fear. And I was like, <laughs> I was like oh. Well, and I, I do think that, you know, I'm just realizing as we're talking, I think a big part of it is whenever we are pregnant after loss and we see them thrive and they grow in their birth and you're like, wow, life is so amazing. It's so fragile. And this baby made it here to where you kind of think they're so strong. They can handle going on the jungle gyms, you know, they're resilient. And so I think that we view that differently because to us, they made it through like a stage that other our other children did not make it through. Like they're super human or something. Yeah, it's interesting you said that because there's a there was a mo- there's a, a mom brain podcast I listened to um, with Daphne Oz for a really long time. But they had interviewed Christine Barberich, who was I guess the co-founder of Refinery Twenty Nine at some point, and she had gone through eight miscarriages, wow. something crazy, to finally have her daughter Rafaela. And when she was pregnant with her daughter, her, her friend had told her that having a baby is three people coming around a table. It's you, it's God, and it's the baby. And that the baby also has a will to live. Yeah. So they have their own sense of survival from the minute they are conceived. And I think that's something that I definitely hung on to that concept. And I think it's similar to what you just said. It's just they survive and they will. And when they're born, I had, I can't tell you the relief and you know, that's like when they're, when you're pregnant and something goes wrong, there's nothing you can do about it because it's happening to you Mm -hmm. and inside of you. And it's in this protected environment that they still don't understand everything about. I love when obstetricians tell me that I'm like, Oh, that's, that's reassuring. (laughs) (laughs) But, um, you know, when they're outside of you, you could physically hold them and take them somewhere. And, and yeah, it's better in that way, you know, and they did, they, they, they survived birth. They can get crazy. Like if you really think about thriving in a uterus and then coming out and breathing air, it's insane to me. Incredible. And then after all the miscarriages I've had, it's a miracle that any babies are born. When you learn about all the random stuff that can happen, you're like, what? 
you know, it's just how did any of us get here in the 80s? <laughs> like for me, I'm like, <laughs> how did we get here? You know, my mom's like, I didn't know about any of this stuff. I didn't even think about it. I was like, well, lucky for you. Now you get to. <laughs> so. Yeah, my parents say the same thing, but then still try to give me um, parenting advice. And I'm like, I think I'm much better off than you oh, are. I, I don't know. think I don't think I need any advice. <laughs> I don't, you know, you were fine. I love that one. That's my favorite. You were fine. You could sleep in a 75 degree room. I love blah. I said, yes, mom. Bumpers and a blanket. Yeah. Um, yeah. I had a comforter as a baby. Oh, my mom when you said that we survived, like we survived literally. Yeah. I, tell, I tell my mom, I'm like, a lot of babies didn't. And that's why they made these rules. You know, I have to like walk her back. Um, my sister's an emergency room nurse and has her IVF baby earth side. And she, she, just the things that she sees my mom do, she's like, oh my God. Yeah. She's, like, she's like, mom did this. I was like, I'm like, listen, you just have to lay the law down. <laughs> yeah, that's one thing I'm thankful for the pandemic for. Um, I have had like the first year basically to myself with my son, but now that things are opening up and people are getting vaccinated, like uh, my in-laws are holding him more and my parents are coming around and it's just like watching people hold your baby that you have after a loss is a whole other thing. A whole other thing. I I know. I look back at those pictures all the time. I, my, I love my second baby. Don't get me wrong. There's something about that first one after not ever knowing if you're going to have one. Mm Mm-hmm. And that is a, it's just, it's magic. There's really no other word for it. No, it truly is. It truly is. Well, Stephanie, thank you so much for sharing with me. I could talk to you forever because I feel like I have a lot of parallels with what you've experienced. And I hope that by sharing, you feel less alone. And I do want to say, because you said um, how this platform gives a voice to people who aren't sharing openly that I do have a post somewhere on the internet. I don't remember which account, but I put on there that bravery is not measured by how many people know about your struggles. And so if anybody is listening to this and they're like, wow, how can they have such an open conversation about something I can't even talk, talk about that doesn't, I don't want anybody to think that any stories on here are stronger, you know, from stronger women. Um, because no. nobody has to know about your story for you to be strong. Getting through what you've been through makes you strong. No, and I think sharing it is something I've been very vocal about doing. Maybe not after my stillbirth. I don't think I got vocal about sharing how much stuff I'd been through. Because I kind of checked a lot of boxes in the infertility world in the yeah. end. And I think that it wasn't until I was having the, like the early losses that I was like, need to talk about this because others are talking about it and it's okay too. Mm-hmm. You know? um, so I'm going to continue to do that, you know, in whatever way I can. For me, I think it looks more like advocacy work and, and support groups because I'm very much Instagram challenged. I'm an early millennial. <laughs> <laughs> I see people's pages and I'm like, damn, these are amazing. I can't do any of this. So people would not be there for my content. <laughs> I'm like mid millennial and I'm still like not very um like oh, reels wow. take me hours to put together whenever I have done it. It is not easy. Not easy. And I see these people that do them and I'm like, they're so creative and <laughs> why well, I work in a hospital. So I uh we don't have to be creative there. We just follow clinical <laughs> clinical flow charts. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me though. I really had a great time talking to you. Yeah, me too. Thank you, Stephanie. Um, I'm going to...